Lord, thank you for this little um, place of peace this morning. Thank you for that we get to be in your presence. Thank you that together we get to come to you and um, express ourselves to you, cry out to you. And Lord, may we hear you now speak back to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, and we're just going to go over, we're just going to finish up the chapter, okay? Let me read it to you. This is 18 through 24. Please follow along. If you don't have your Bibles, um, I got it up on the screen for you. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, Nathan, I'm sorry, Merry Christmas. You're welcome. We'll get, we'll get you into it. Yes, too soon. I'm sorry. Well, um, we've just started a new series in the book of Matthew for those that have just been joining us. Um, it's been on Sunday mornings. And one thing I, I want to start this off by is that is perhaps um, maybe unique to Matthew as a gospel writer among the other gospel writers is that Matthew by far pays, pays much closer detail to the birth story of Jesus than any of the other gospel writers. And he does this, in my opinion, for, a few, for a few, at least a few reasons. Matthew give, believes the birth of Jesus, as we discovered last week, is a new beginning for all of humanity. It's very important that we get the details right, because he thinks this is new for everybody. You may remember that last week, instead of using the more common Greek word for the, for the word genealogy in verse 1, he used the word genesis or geneseos, which, means, which would have referred any Jewish reader at the time or listener at the time to the first book of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, the new beginning. And there he was saying, my book, my biography of Jesus is the new beginning in Jesus Christ. It would have been a compelling statement from the very get-go. Any Jewish person would have at that point been on the edge of their seats. And, well, he, and now he's used that same word again. You can look in verse 18 for the word birth or origin. It is the Greek word again, genesis, um, which now our translators have translated instead of genealogy, they've translated to birth or origin. It's like, you know, a translator would say, okay, we translated it genealogy in verse 1. Now what should we do with this in verse 18? Being a translator is actually a very, very difficult job. So what's the deal? Why does Matthew use the same word twice? Why is he doing that? Well, once he used it, as we remember, to start a more broad 
cataloged accounting of Jesus' parentage, that is, his genealogy, kind of a 30,000-foot view of where Jesus had come from in a generational kind of a way. And now, this second time, it kicks off a more detailed, personal, particular, circumstantial way, a kind of a zooming of the end of the camera to Jesus' particular situation with his birth, surrounding his birth. And interestingly enough, did you know that the book of Genesis has a similar structure to it? Did you know? In Genesis chapter 1, you find a more broad catalog, again, kind of 30,000 foot accounting of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And then in chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, with the, with the Hebrew word tolidot, or generations in English, the word the Septuagint sometimes even um, translates to Genesis or Geneseos there as well, um, it starts a more particular, up-close, circumstantial accounting of the, of the creation of mankind or of humanity. Matthew is following that same structure here in his biography of of Jesus. And by doing this, he is saying again, loud and clear, that Jesus is the new human. Or to put it maybe in our way, this is where we're getting the title for this whole series, Jesus is the new way to be human. He's what we all, what God wants all of us to experience on some level. And this book The Gospel of Matthew is the new beginning and the recreation of the world through this new human, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what he's drawing our attention to. Notice that just as the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 started by hovering over the waters, started God's creative activity by hovering over the waters, here in Matthew's work, he has the Holy Spirit bringing divine life into Mary's womb. So there's all sorts of parallels. Matthew is clearly pointing to this new beginning. The Holy Spirit's doing a new thing and bringing a new human and a new redemptive work into this world, but now just not through waters, but through a womb and through this, through this virgin. Secondly, Matthew is also going to be going into more detail into Jesus' birth because Matthew believes that Jesus' life, as we already mentioned, is the kind of life that humanity was always meant to have. That's what he wants us to see here. He's not um, showing us the origin story of Jesus in so such detail because he's a stickler for details or because he wants to show us fun facts surrounding Jesus' birth or things like that. Rather, he is drilling down on these things because he believes that the more you know and see Jesus, the more actually you will get to know and see yourself. And, and that you'll capture the high vision of what God, what God is turning you into, what God wants to mold you into. In fact, the Bible throughout insists that it is impossible to know yourself or to know the truth about yourself until you know the truth about Jesus. Those two things run parallel. This is why we prepped this series. If you remember, we looked at James chapter 1, verse 23, where there he says the, the whole canon of the word of God is like a mirror And when you look into it, you see a vision of yourself. And if you walk away and don't do according to what you see, you have what I would call, what other people call spiritual amnesia. You've forgotten what you've just looked, what you just looked like. What the word is showing us is a vision of yourself through the, through the eyes of, or through the image of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to do 
To do what? To be conformed into the image of God's Son. If you're wondering what God is doing in your life, he is conforming you little by little into the image, the kind of life, the way of life of Jesus. It's exciting. This is, the, this is the good life, the abundant life that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10. I came to give you life, an abundant, good, rich, full life. Isn't that what we all crave, what we all want? Matthew's saying this is what's going on. Now, this wor- how this works is actually not mystical or religious, if you think of it, but actually sociological in a way. Your closest relationships, can you think about this? Your closest relationships reveal, the more you get to know a person, reveal not just a lot about them, but also reveals a lot about you at the same time. And especially the more close and intimate those relationships are, the more you get to know things about yourself that maybe you didn't know before or maybe you wouldn't have wanted to know before. For those of us who are married or in a romantic relationship, remember to when you first met that person or you first saw that person and how everything about your, that person fascinated you. Everything they did was amazing. You wanted to be, uh, I was watching a documentary on Netflix about David Beckham, you know, Bend It Like Beckham. And he met this, uh, you know, he married one of the Spice Girls. He, and he, interestingly enough, he and his soccer team was watching an interview with the Spice Girls, and he said out loud, I'm going to marry that one. And they thought he was kidding. And he goes, no, no, I'm serious. I'm going to marry that girl. And she came to his game, and they started dating. And it was so frustrating. They're interviewing teammate, former teammates of his. And they said, here he is going to the World Cup. Here we're, we're, we're going to play Liverpool in a few days. And he would charter a plane and fly hours to see her only for 20 minutes before he had to come back and fly back again. But he was so fascinated, and then they interviewed her, and she said, I never really enjoyed football or soccer at all. I never enjoyed it. But she said, anything he did, I, I, he, she goes, he could be painting a wall in front of him, and I would have flown out to be there and watch him paint this wall. You know, it's that early love stage where just everything you do and the way you do it is just fascinating. Do you remember when the, it was that way? Well, um, you know, when I was first getting to know Nicole, I learned a lot about her, but I also learned a lot about myself. Like, for one thing, bummer, I learned how selfish I was. <laughs> I learned that I was capable of selfishness in a way that I had not seen before. And that was not so much fun, right? Things that were under the radar before, or that I didn't notice before, or that my mom told me was good about me before. Now I realize, oh man, okay, that's not so much fun to, hear, to see about myself. I'm learning about myself, things that would not have bubbled up if it hadn't been for being in love with her. But also I learned some good things. I learned that I'm willing, I have the ability to, for self-sacrifice. I have the ability to put other people's dreams in front of mine. I have the ability to, to work long and hard to make sure she's secure. I have this motivation. So I learned some, some great things too. The more I knew her, the more I loved her, and the more I learned about myself. This works, this works with children, too. Right now, Noble is asking Nicole and I all about our stories. What kind of dog did you have? Um, what, kind of, what kind of brave things did you do? What kind of brave things did you chicken out of? He wants to know because he's drawing a straight line from Nicole and I to himself at this point. He wants a dog just like I had when I was a kid. He learned that I 
got a slingshot once and almost shot and killed a seagull at Coeur d'Alene Lake. Uh, you know, I, I, it was the first time I ever used it, and I thought, oh, no way is this going to work. And <laughs> if the seagull had not moved and did like a matrix move, he would have been a gunner. Now Noble wants to kill seagulls. <laughs> so um, this is how it works. And he, he wants to pass the tests in life that I failed. He's discovering himself by discovering us. You see how that works? It works this way. This is what Matthew is doing here. He's showing us Jesus because he knows he's also showing us ourselves. There are going to be things that we read about Jesus that are going to make us discover things about ourselves that we're going to go, man, darn it. I don't, I don't add up to that. Now, that's really hard. And then there's other things that we're, that we're going to learn that are going to be awesome and wonderful and hopeful and, just, and surprising. And this is our story here. Let me show you. Matthew is going to, by the way, he's going, we're going to be in Christmas for a few weeks. He, he breaks up the Christmas story into four short stories, one uh, starting here, 18, to the rest of this chapter, and then three next week. We'll, we'll get into all those next week. So Merry Christmas, Nathan. Here we go. Let's, let's look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." Um, as Nathan pointed out, the greatest disadvantage we have about this is that we're so familiar with it. We get it in droves every year, be it Christmas plays or pageants and all the music and all the things or all the sermons that we listen to. And not only does it uh, give us the tendency to kind of brush over it or to read it quickly. I don't know if you feel your eyes moving faster. Even if you're not used to Christianity or not from a church context, likely you're familiar with this story. But also the danger is that we tend to um, backfill it with our Western version of this. So we are in danger not only of reading over it and backfilling it with what we don't understand, that is um, Jesus' societal or historical situation. We don't understand that. But we also, we backfill it with what we maybe do understand, and that's our own context, our own way of life. And we do this without even realizing it. Our brains just go for it, depending on your background. So a few things we need to keep in mind as we consider this story. First of all, Jesus' culture, in many ways, is nothing like ours. <laughs> And I mean, like, in some ways, incredibly opposite. We live in an egalitarian, individualistic, liberal, moral, subjective, non-religious society. That's where we are. Jesus was born into a hyper-conservative, hyper-religious, collective, patriarchal, morally objective, shame and honor society. That's where Jesus was. And on top of that, Nazareth which is where this story takes place, Luke tells us, was an extremely small village. It's not a, not a sprawling metropolis like we have here. It was a very small village, which means everyone knew everyone. You guys, Joseph and Mary likely knew each other their entire lives. 
In a city like ours, this is hard for us to get because it's rare. We have people for certain spaces. We have, our ch- we have our church space. We expect to see relatively the same people that we always see on Sunday morning. And then we might see a different set of people, but always at the supermarket or always on the bus. And when those two people converge, it's like a surprise to us. When we meet somebody from church at the gym, we go, no way. We're like shocked. You come here? You know, we, we, it's a big deal. But in Nazareth, this was not, a, you, you, were, you literally did ev- almost everything with everyone all the time. You worked the same fields alongside the same people. You traded with the families within your village. You all went to the same synagogue. All the kids were educated at the same school. So Joseph, and, Joseph was probably, he probably remembers when the news, which would have been big news in a little village, when the news of Mary's birth you know, reverberated throughout the village. He probably remembered the day that his betrothed wife was born. He watched her grow up. She probably remembered him as like one of the older kids in the village, one of the toddlers running around. On top of that, marriages, okay, wrap your mind around this one, marriages were arranged by their parents, which, I mean, as a parent, we now understand that. As single people, we were like, ew, gross. But now as parents, we're like, why do we leave it to young kids Raging with hormones to pick their own, like, that doesn't seem right. Uh, Imagine, our church is small enough where we can do this. Imagine if Scott Callahan and Jameson Osborne got together and they arranged for Elodie and Benny to be married. That's the situation here, right? Uh, No matter what the kids said, that's what was going on. It would have been awkward, but remember, they always would have known each other. An advantage because Jameson and Tara, they would know Elodie her entire life. Their family would grow. They would get a bigger family by bringing. And back then, families getting together and forming bonds were a, was, a, was, a, was really a, a matter of national security. Children were everything. Um, back in a collective society, the more children that you had, the more wealthy you were the more secure you were, and the more honored you were because you bought protection to the village. You were more wealthy because you had more kids. This is when money was, was centralized in what you could do as a family. So if Nathan, let's say his family's an electrician family, and my family's an electrician family, and let's say I have 12 children and he has eight, and you're looking for someone to do some electric work, you're gonna pick me because I have more kids, which means the job will get done faster and probably better. It, it equaled a better company. So the more kids we could have, the better off we would be financially. Also, there was no retirement. There was no social security. There was none of that. So when I got old and I needed someone to take care of Nicole and I, we had an army of children who would do it. It was, it was, a, it was the more kids we had, the more secure we would be in our old age. And finally, back in, especially even more ancient than first century, um, in the first century, you know, Big, bigger families invaded and conquered littler ones. Bigger tribes invaded and conquered littler ones. Bigger nations invaded and conquered. So the more kids you had, the more honored you were, the more revered you were, especially as a woman. If you could, if you could have a ton of kids, you were like, wow, you're blessed of God. You're like a national hero. Thank you for it because it's more, more people to train up to protect, especially boys to protect. That was the situation that they're, that they're born into. Now, 
Um, once all the arrangements were set, um, they would have arranged for a bride price and a dowry and all of those things. Mary and Joseph would have entered into a year-long, um, kind of tr- not a trial period, but a year-long betrothal period called the Arusen, where you, would have, you, would, you were legally married. That's why verse 18 says that they were betrothed, but verse 19 calls Joseph her husband. They were legally married. Um, in fact, it would have taken a bill of divorcement to break it up at this point. They were legally, but the woman stayed at home with her parents, and they weren't, there was absolutely no sex. They weren't even allowed to be alone together until that year was complete. So with all of that in mind, imagine how this whole thing would have went down. Remember, with all that in mind, you're in a hyper-conservative, hyper-religious, shame-honor, collective culture, small village, and all of a sudden, you know, Mary and Joseph, they're maybe at the public market, and Mary says, Joseph, come here, I have something to tell you. And he comes over and says, what is it, Mary? And she says, well, there's just no way good to say this, I'm just gonna come out with it, I'm pregnant. What? You're pregnant? How in the world? Okay, I know you wanted your parents to set you up with Stephen instead of, but is that what happened? No, and, she's, and then she says, no, 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 not like, it's, it's, it's fine. It's of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Joseph would have been like, oh, no. Oh, no. What did I do? How? But Joseph even though he clearly doesn't believe her. By the way, we, there's a lot of people today that say, okay, people believed in things back. That's why there's miracles and angels in the Bible because people were ancient and really nomadic back then. They were simpler people. They didn't have science like we do today. So they could believe in things like virgins getting pregnant. Uh, Joseph does not believe her right here in the Bible. And I'm pretty sure even though they might not have had science, they weren't idiots. I'm pretty sure back then they figured out that a virgin typically doesn't spontaneously get pregnant or that dead people typically don't start living again. They weren't, um, they weren't dumb. And here, Joseph doesn't believe. And if you're having a hard time buying this, hey, you're in good company. If you're like, ooh, this is, might be where me and the Bible part ways, you're in good, just hang in there. Keep reading, hang in there. Now, he wanted, even though he didn't believe her, he wanted to do right by her and he wanted to divorce her quietly. That would have been really hard in a small village like that. To divorce her meant, a, meant public disgrace. You would have to prove why, she is, um, why she's divorceable. He would have to have a public trial and say she has had sexual relationships outside of our union. It would have been a mark on her for the rest of her life and it would have been very difficult. Um, but he wants to do this and he has this in mind. And by the way, this is, produ- this is um, actually potentially lucrative for Joseph. He would have gotten his bride price back and he wouldn't have had to pay a dowry if he could have proved that she was unfaithful, which wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been hard. But still, this just gives you an insight into his character. He wants, to, he wants to give her her life back, but he also doesn't want to be married to her either. Now, Matthew is telling us all of this for at least a few different reasons. This first segment of the origin story of Jesus tells us two things. It tells us the story of Jesus and what Matthew wants, to, wants us to know out of the gate about Jesus, but it also tells us the story of humanity, the story of ourselves at the same time. 
Let me explain. On the one hand, it tells us about Jesus. Verse 21, if, um, if you want to um, mark it somehow, verse 21 is an extremely important verse to our understanding for the entire book of Matthew. It's basically a one-sentence summary of all of, Math- of, of all of the book of Matthew. Let's pick it apart a little bit. Look at verse 21. I'll read to verse 23. She, this is the, an angel appears to Joseph, and he says, hey, look, it's actually true. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So an angel comes to Joseph while he's sleeping. He's trying to figure out what to do about this. And an angel comes and says, actually, it's, she's telling the truth. This is of the Holy Spirit. It will be, this is before you could tell the gender of your baby. It will be a son, so calls out the gender. And then you're going to name him Jesus. And Jesus is a, the word Jesus, the name Jesus is a telling thing about who Jesus is right off the bat. First of all, it was not a new name. This would have been a very common name. A lot of people were named Jesus in that day. Um, Jesus is the word Iesus, which is translated from the Hebrew Yeshua, which um, is a compound word of the personal name of God, Yahweh, and Shua is a root word that means to save. So Jesus' name is literally Yahweh saves. It's from the Old Testament uh, uh, name, Yeshua, or what we would translate into English, Joshua, okay? But it means Yahweh saves. But there's a fascinating play on words here that is lost in our English translations. It says, Um, On the one hand, you shall name his name Jesus or Yahweh saves. And then it says, for he will save. And the verb there, he will save, is from the root word of Jesus' very name. Jesus' name. So the idea is, who will save? Who does this, where does the pronoun he belong to? Yahweh saves because he will save. Is it Yahweh that's going to do the saving? Or is it Jesus that's going to do the saving? Is he named Yahweh saves because he's going to point out that Yahweh saves? Or is he named Yahweh saves because he is going to save? Is that his identity? Is that his name? To which Matthew would say, yep. Yeah. He's doing that very much on purpose. And to answer the question that he himself has inspired in the reader's mind, he tacks on Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 to answer his own question. He says, this is fulfilled, uh, pleru in the Greek, this is the fulfilled. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Make no mistake about it. Matthew is unmistakably claiming that Jesus is Yahweh who has come to save. Now, you may um, disagree with what Matthew is saying. That's fine. But at least we've got to acknowledge from the very beginning, because a lot of people will tell you, did you know that the Gospels never really claim that Jesus is God? They will say that. Um, And I I just want you to know, Mark is very clear here. Matthew is from the very beginning. This is God with us. This is what he believes. There can be no mistake about it. And now Matthew leaves it up to us. Throughout the Gospels, you will feel Matthew just giving you the raw data, and then he basically just says, now you've got to deal with that. 
It's time for you to decide. You should feel, as we go through any of the Gospels, especially John, but Matthew as well, you should feel Jesus being kind of shoved at you a little bit. Like almost like the Gospel writers say, here it is, what are you going to do with that? Now you have to make a decision. You, you, you will not be able to walk away from Matthew without deciding something about who, who he believes Jesus is. And that, that happens from the very, very beginning. Matthew says, this is Yahweh who's come to save the world, who's come to save his people. Well, who are his people? This also tells us about us. Let me read it again. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, this is a dangerous verse for us especially if you are in a Christian context here in the Western world. Because depending on your background, your brain automatically fills in the definitions and meanings and entire theological systems around a few words that are found in this sentence. Uh, words like people, words like sin, and words like save are all we have, our brains just automatically fill in definitions that I, will, I am proposing to you, a Jewish reader would not have thought about the same things that perhaps you are. To our world, for example, people means individual people, one-on-one -on -one individual people. But in Matthew's audience, people would have meant a community of people, assuredly the people of Israel in focus here, an entire community of people. In our world, sin, it means we're guilty before God, right? It means we've, done, we've broken God's law, and therefore we are worthy of going to hell after we die. That's typically what we think. But when Matthew's audience would have, read, would have heard or read this sentence, they would have thought of sin and salvation within the collective relational story between mankind and God and between Israel and the rest of the world. It cannot be abstracted from that. We, part of our problem is we abstract these terms into theological systems. We make nice, neat, concise definitions. And that's fine to a certain level. But when we divorce them out of the, out of the macro story of the entire arch of the Bible, we start to lose a lot of the nutrients in these words. Let me give you the story. In the Bible, Genesis 1, God made humanity to flourish and to thrive. Right from the beginning in the Bible, you see an extremely high view of mankind. We were made to rule and reign like kings and queens because of our, because of our relationship to the king. In other words, we're to rule like the high king and for the high king. We're vice regents over this earth, and we're supposed to gather up the natural resources and make this a place of thriving and goodness that we can all thrive and flourish and give glory to God. That's the idea in uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. But you might know, chapter 3 comes two pages in, we fail. We fail. We make it about us. And the consequence, here's what's interesting, the consequence was, the, I'm going to put a tree in the middle of the garden, it's a tree of good and evil. It's a tree of, that will give you wisdom. I don't want you to eat of that. You can eat of all the other trees in the garden. There's so much variety. This is the Garden of Eden. There was probably so many fruits and yummy things that maybe there was a cotton candy tree. I don't know. But there were so many things that we don't have anymore. This one thing I don't want you to eat. And notice when 
when this evil creature slithers up, in the Hebrew, it's a really negative name, Nahash. When Nahash slithers up, remember what he does. He says, he says, did God really say, don't eat of that tree? What has he done? He's caused, he, he's, he's put doubt, but how has he done it? He's, he's flipped it, hasn't he? He twisted it by emphasizing the 1% negative versus the 99% positive. In other words, he said, God is not good. He's holding, because he's holding one little thing back from you, he must not be trustworthy. And it says, when she saw that the tree was good for wisdom, she took it. Now her focus is on the one negative thing and she, can't, she can no longer see all the positive. I mean, don't we do this? If this is the one negative thing in my life, or maybe a few of them, if, I hold, if, I, if you can get me to focus on this bad boy and hold it real close, I can't see any of the good things that are all around me. See what, see what it's doing there? He's saying, look at this. Did he really say? And he's conc- he is challenging God's word but also challenging God's character. It, the lie, the serpentine lie, as scholars call it, behind every lie, behind every sin, is God is not committed to your well-being. Therefore, you need to take matters into your own hands. God doesn't want you to be wise. Did God not want them to be wise? Of course he did. But the way to get wisdom was through trusting him. Trust me. Trust me about this prohibition this one prohibition they couldn't do it and now that's that's the way of it all and he said now look the the day you eat of it you will die did they die when they ate of that fruit it's not your question not the way we think of death right there the way we think of death in our world is a cessation of processes we stop, we stop living, we, we die, we go, we, we're buried, we go back to the earth. The Bible here is teaching us a bigger definition of death. Ultimately, when they ate of it, they were cast out of God's presence. And underneath, so they were, it's what we call exile. They couldn't stay anymore. It's like when we remove a child from causing harm. We say, time out in your room. We are removing them and we're separating them from relationship. It's really a relational situation. Um, Theologians call this spiritual death or spiritual separation from God. And under that umbrella, we can put in all the other things that we think of when we think of death and sin, like the cessation of processes would be a lowercase d. Separation from God would be a capital D, capital death. And because of that, we have the breakdown of the family, we have dysfunction, we have crime, disease, mental illness, war, abuse, hatred, cynicism, regret, blood feud, uh, genocide, on and on and on it goes. The Bible would put all of that under death. They're all the result of being exiled from God's presence. So we're talking about not just sin done by you, which is important, but a Hebrew person would, talk, would also think of sin done to you and would think of sin done around you. We can all think of all three of those categories, can't we? 
It was much bigger to them. So what did God do? Well, eventually, God, well, first of all, notice that when they, when they ate the fruit, God comes after them. He's walking in the garden. He says, where are you? We see God going in to face it. God is not going, ew, gross. You, oh, I'm so ashamed of you. No, God goes in and says, where are you? You're hiding. And the entire plot line of the Bible to a Jewish person is God making a way for his people to dwell with him again, where they can again flourish and thrive. That's what, that, that's what sin and salvation and all those things would have, would have meant. Eventually, God called Abraham, and the same call, the same mandate was put onto Abraham. In Genesis 12, 2, 2 uh, through 3, it says, I will make of you a great nation. That would be the nation of Israel, the one that we're following in the news today. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and those that dishonor you I will curse. And in, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You must understand that the nation of Israel has always been uh, wrapped up and enmeshed with the rest of mankind from a biblical perspective. Israel has always been about the healing and renewal of all of humanity. So from a Jewish perspective, it's not that he, you, know, you might read in here, save his people, which are Israelites. You might think, well, what about me? Did I not make the cut? Well, it's, this is an issue of priority, not of value. He's saying, I have chosen Israel to bless you all. Therefore, save Israel, you save the world. That's the idea here. Genesis 18, verse 19 says, I have chosen him, that's Abraham, this is God speaking, that he might command his children and his household after him, listen to this phrase, to keep the way of Yahweh. That's what Israel was supposed to do originally. That's the ideal Israel. They were to keep the way of Yahweh. What is the way of Yahweh? It says it in the next few words. By doing righteousness and justice. That's how Israel, they're a kind of people that do righteousness and justice to the point where you would be walking by and you would say, oh, they're Yahweh people because of how they live, because of the way they conduct themselves. Sadaqah mishpat, it's this compound word that goes throughout all the Old Testament, really applying mostly to God's people. This is how we are a counterculture, how we stand out. We are we do righteousness and justice. Righteousness is a relational word. It means I'm doing right by you, and we do right by God. We're in right relationship with God and with others, and justice is giving at sacrifice to yourself, not just equally, but at sacrifice. So if I have just one meal and both of us are hungry, I give it to you. So I know what it's like to be you, and you know what it's like to be me. Right? This is how they were supposed to live. This would make them stand out to be the new Adams, the new Eves on the planet and to bring Yahweh glory. Did they pass or did they fail? They failed really, really bad. In fact, they became just like all the other nations around them. You can read, if you ever want to really be depressed and read the book of Judges, it's like this cycle that just gets worse and worse and worse till at the end of the book, the phrase is repeated three times, they became a law unto themselves. In other words, they just did what, they, what just came into the inclinations of their heart. They're like animals, instinct. Then God picked kings, and starting with Saul 
and then David and king after king, they all had the chance to be the anointed one, the Mashiach, the, one, the king that would make it all right. And all of them failed until just, we repeat, the Bible comes back around. Just like Adam and Eve, they were exiled again out of Israel into Babylon. And that's basically, with well, one-third of them returned to Israel, but that's basically where the Old Testament ends, on a downer. Because one, only one-third of Israel returns but then even though they're in the land, they're not free there. They're under the boot. They're under the Babylonians. Then they're under the Medes and the Persians. Then they're under Greece. Then they're under the, under the Roman Empire. They're slaves in their own land. In fact, a lot of great scholarship has come out recently to say that they still considered themselves exiled. They were using that word. We're still exiled, but in our own land. What's the point? In the context, this is how a Jewish person would have read verse 21. In, the con- in this context, sin is above all about a breach in relationship, most importantly with God, but not just that. It's a breach in all relationships with God, with self, and with others. There's a spiritual separation, a psychological separation. We all know what that feels like to want to be something that we can't do. There's a war inside of ourselves and social separation. We're breaking down. So sin is at least being guilty before God. We're right. That's the Western view. We we just stop there. It's much more than that. Much, much more than that. And therefore, if that is how a first century Jew would have processed the word sin, how do you think they would have processed the word salvation? If sin is exile, what would salvation be? A return from exile, coming home, absolutely, bringing ushered back into God's presence. So salvation is at least going to heaven when you die. That's as far as we think of it. I'm going to say a prayer and believe something so that when I die, I'm forgiven and I go to heaven. That's at least it. But it's about being brought, brought back into a right relationship with God now. And because of that, we've been brought back from exile spiritually. Because of that, we're starting, to the degree that we realize that, we're starting to be healed in our bodies, psychologically, and in our relationships. The earth is beginning to renew now. Theologians call this inaugurated eschatology, the already and and not yet. We're in this kind of in-between that we have been returned from exile, but the more we realize that, the more it's beginning to gather up and start happening. And it will culminate culminate, um, in the glory of his return. So um, salvation was was about all those things. So Matthew is saying that Jesus has, to a Jewish hearer or listener, Matthew is saying that Jesus has come to end the exile and to bring humanity back to Yahweh so that all things will be made right and can flourish and thrive the way it was always meant to be. It wasn't this far off thing only. It had major implications for my life right here, right now. It was so exciting. And that's how it would have been read in verse 21. What does this say about us? Well, number one, just a few thoughts for you. It means that we're utterly lost. We're utterly lost. We could not save ourselves. This is really hard for us because we live in a um, 
humanistic society where we believe in the progress of humanity and we see a lot of that all around us. We see planes that fly, we're making huge advances in the medical world and technological world. There are, um, there are extremely big cultural movers and elites that believe that we will eventually create our own utopia and we will be able to solve all things including death itself, all disease, global warming, all the th- war that we will be able to basically, we will get the kingdom but without but without the king. It's a, it's a tower to Babel all over again. We can make the kingdom of God, but let's just keep the king out of it. This is about us. This is about humanity. And so it's really hard for us to understand that we need, that we, we're helpless. We need salvation ourselves. But left to our own devices, there is no hope. It's helplessly naive in the Western world. As much as I love the Western world, We're helplessly naive to think that if we just had a better economy with better education and a lot more money, that we could solve the things that are going on in the human heart. We think that if we could just give everyone equal rights and better wealth and retirement and equal access to education and healthcare and all of those things, we could save the world. I'm not against any of those things. I'm just saying that's helplessly short-sighted and reductionistic to the size of the problem, the human problem that the Bible says is in mankind. The problem is in the heart. (laughs) It's in the heart. Matthew says, no, our hearts are broken off from God, ourselves, and from others. We need God himself to show up. And he has, Matthew says. Not only does it say, though, that we are helplessly lost and sinful and helpless to get back, it also says that we are utterly, utterly loved and valuable. Jesus' story says two things about us. One, that even on your best day, it took God's son to come and rescue you. Even on your best day. And at the same time, it says you're so loved that he did send his son to come and rescue you. At the same moment, and from the beginning, you've got this incredible balance that we, we, we dare not tweak with. On the one hand, if you just believe that you are sinful as a human and you're hopeless, you're going you're gonna to fall into despair and depression. There's no way out of that. You, shame will take over. But on the other hand, if you believe that you're only loved and valuable, you won't grasp the seriousness of your situation. There won't be any need for repentance and cleansing and holiness and those types of things. We have to keep these two together as, as does the scripture. You are loved. You are, you are um, I am, you are, you are worse than probably what you think. And yet you are more loved than you ever dared to imagine. That's the truth. That's what the Bible tells us about us through the story of Jesus That means a healed world, no more war, no more abuse, no more dysfunction. We are out of exile, no more the strong eating the weak. That salvation has come, and he loves us so much that he would even send his own son to do it. Now, if you're new to the Bible, or you just find it really hard to buy into the virgin birth and angels and miracles, and I want to start this off at the beginning because we're going to run into a lot of them. It's good. It's a good ringtone. We're going to run into a lot of them. 
Um, I want to say up front, this is going to be challenging for us in the Western world for a few different reasons. But let me just start, and we'll, we'll deal with it as it comes. But let me just start by having a moment of simplicity of options for you. There really is a couple of, only a couple of options by which you want to believe. There's the story told to us today by the, the postmodern world that we live in. And that is the reason things like miracles and angels and the virgin birth is so difficult for us to swallow is because we live in a time and place in a culture that says that we live in a closed system. In other words, there is no God. Or if there is a God, he, she, it, they, they're not interested in you. No one's coming to save you. Therefore, it's all on us. If you need saving, you need to do it yourself, or we need to do it together as a society. And of course, if this is true, if there is no God, if, or if whatever's out there is not interested in us, then we do live in a closed system and we are all alone. That's the narrative that our culture is telling us every day. You are all alone. Now, imagine the enormous amount of pressure that's on us because of that. Literally, I'm not exaggerating, it's a cosmic amount of pressure that that narrative puts on our shoulders. If you need saving, it's on you. It's all up to you. It's no wonder that anxiety levels that are at an all-time high, especially in Seattle. We are the most anxious city in the United States, according to the Seattle Times. People that you run into out there are scared. They're waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're trying to succeed on their own means. They're trying to conquer the world. They're building their own kingdom to the sky, but without the king. And that means it's all on them. No wonder suicide is through the roof. No wonder families are falling apart. No wonder there's, so, there's coping like there's never been coping before. No wonder all of those things are happening. I mean, it makes total sense when you see how our society is operating and, quite frankly, unraveling around us. And it should incite compassion because of the enormous amount of pressure that's on everyone's shoulders. No wonder we see more and more people talking to themselves. Their minds are breaking under this kind of, kind of pressure. But then there's the story that Matthew is telling, and that is that we live in an open system created by a God who is absolutely dedicated to the human project, who's come to get us, who's come to save us, and is involved in your life. In fact, he's as close to you as the, as the air on your skin. And he's a God who's come into the darkness, into the suffering, into this world to show us how to come back to him, to bring us out of exile, but also how to bring the rest of the world and to, and to bring his kingdom wherever we go. That he's not resigned to abandon the human project, but has come as a human to show us a new way to be human, that we would be healed and actually then start using us to heal others. That's the story of the Bible. What story do you, is getting you up out of bed in the morning? That's really, we'll get into the miracles and the science and all of those things. But for now, I want you to know that this is a battle of narratives. There's a story that our world tells us every day through ads, 
through movies, through music, through all the things that, I mean, you step out that door, you're gonna be inundated through the airwaves, through everything that you see and consume. There will be a certain message coming to you, framing you within a narrative, within a story. You are on your own, it's up to you. That's how you're great. Better than everyone, it's dog eat dog out there. It's the strong eats the weak. Or there's the story that the Bible is telling that you're worse than what you thought. You, you're worse than what you dared to imagine, but you're, you're more loved than you ever dared to imagine. He'll never leave you. He'll never abandon you. In fact, he's come to get you and to bring you out of exile. What sort of universe are you inhabiting? I'm gonna leave you with these questions. What kind of worldview are you operating from? What kind of narrative do you have running on in the back of your mind that's propelling you? And that will dictate how you see yourself and how you see all the world around you. Lord, you've come to get us. That's what Matthew is proclaiming. Jesus. Yahweh saves. Or Yahweh himself has come to save, to do what we could never do for ourselves, to live the kind of life that we have failed to live in order to bring us back from exile, back into a a paradise, an an Edenic Sabbath, Sabbath day kind of rest and relationship with you completely fulfilled in our hearts and minds. And as we continue to stay in that relationship, Lord, as we follow you, that's what Jesus is gonna say to us in a few chapters, follow me. As we follow you, our, li- our minds, our bodies, our society, our families will start to be made right. An abundant life awaits us, Lord, because of what you've done. Thank you. We love you. God, help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.